Jesus Christ was the king of the Reformation. He's the one who brought the Reformation. And the only reason why you're sitting right here with your Bibles in your laps, we're having church, we're singing, is because the Lord Jesus brought about the Reformation. The Reformation was not a time of new discoveries, but rediscoveries of the old biblical truths. It was a time to go back to the ancient paths and not new paths. So that's what the Reformation was all about, going back to the ancient paths. And what, what are the ancient paths? The Scriptures. The church must be constantly under the scrutiny, under the power and the influence of the Word of God. Do you know what happens once the church comes out of that influence? No longer the Word shapes us, but the world starts to shape us. You don't want to go to a church where it's just like a funeral service of a person who actually went to hell and everybody's so sobbing and crying. But you also don't want to go to a church where it feels like it's a circus. we got to have this balance of joy and sobriety. invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the chains of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You may be seated. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. What is in a name? What is in a name? When you're... Some of you have babies, had children. What were you thinking when you were picking the name for the infant? Some of you, I wasn't thinking about anything. <laughs> Some of you are just, I just want to be creative. just want to be different. But what is in a name when it comes to church? What is in, in the name of our local church? The name of a church, together with the statement of faith, I believe that should be very revealing of where the church stands. It should be a clear statement of faith. Uh, the name of the church. So, for example, if you see a church that na the name is Rel Relevant Church, you kind of know what you expect from that church. So, the name is very informative, at least should be. When we name this church, we as a body name this church Salem Reformed Baptist, we desire to make it publicly where we stand in some very distinctive doctrine, doctrines of this church. And this series that we have been going through, investigating what it means for us to be a Reformed Baptist church, has one main purpose, and that is to glorify the Lord. That's why we are preaching through this series. 
to glorify the Lord, but to glorify the Lord in a specific way. And that is by preserving the unity of this church. As Paul says, he says, I, a prisoner of the Lord, he goes and he says, urge you, I command you to walk in a manner worthy that matches the calling to which you have been called. And then he explains how, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. And then look at he says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're commanded by the Lord to be eager to maintain. Look at that. We don't create the unity of the church. We don't create the unity. Who created the unity? Jesus Christ, His blood shed for us. He purchased the unity of the church. But we are commanded to preserve the unity that Christ has given us. And you think about the local church. The local church in one way, serves to reflect the universal church. You cannot see the universal church. So the local church is supposed to reflect the universal church. And in the universal church, Christians are united. We are united in Christ Jesus. Baptists, Presbyterians, Charismatics, Reform, Lutherans, and any other denomination that holds the true gospel, to orthodoxy, are united in Christ. Amen? That's so important. Baptists, Presbyterians, uh, some Anglicans, Reformed, Charismatic, if you hold to the orthodox gospel, we are united. There is this binding in Christ. Look how he says, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. But the local churches are supposed to resemble that unity that we have in the universal church. And you need to think, okay, in one sense, we are already united. Amen? But on the other hand, we are not. Do you know why? Because we have not been glorified yet. We still have issues interpreting the scriptures when it comes to, I would say, secondary aspects. So that's why we have different denominations, different churches. And though these differences do not affect our salvation, they're very important for Christians to be united in their local church. So I think Albert Moeller, he does a great job in talking about Christians having to have a theological triage. What is a triage? When you go to the hospital, somebody there is doing a triage to see who is, yes, who needs the most urgent attention. And the same happens in, theo in theology, in the school of life. So he says, we have... The first level theological issues, and that would be the most emergent subjects in theological doctrines. So, here we have the most crucial doctrines that make us Christians. Apart from these doctrines, there is no Christianity. The doctrine of the Trinity. If you deny the Trinity, you can no longer belong to the true God. 
the full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. Justification by faith. The authority, the supremacy of the scriptures. So these are first order doctrines. And they represent the most fundamental truth of the Christian faith. And a denial of these doctrines represents nothing less than an eventual denial of Christianity itself. So that's the first, the first level theological issues. And then you move to the second level. And here's where we have different denominations and different churches. So here come the disagreements. When Christians organize themselves into churches, so you have different views of church government. You have Presbyterians, you have Congregationalists, you have Episcopalians, you have Baptists. You have different views of church leadership. You have Calvinism and Arminianism, cessationism and continuationism, complementarism and egalitarianism, pedo-baptism, credo-baptism. Those are doctrines that I would say that come in the second level. They're fundamental for Christians to be walking together in a local church. And then you have the third level theological issues, doctrines over which many disagree, and still we can remain in close fellowship in a local church. So even here, for example, in this body here, we have people who have different views in eschatology or some obscure teachings in the scripture. So um, we have sometimes disagreement of what a certain text means, but that's not going to affect anything in our relationship with one another and with the Lord. So the triage doesn't mean that those third-level theological issues are not important. Every doctrine is important, but means that we need to be careful and sober in our thinking where we should be placing it. So, every local church must have clearly stated, I believe, these first two levels in the theological triage. Every local church must have this clear statement of the first level, what unites us as a universal body, and then the second level, so the Christians in that local church can be united. Because, brothers and sisters, we are commanded to keep the unity, preserve the unity, but there can be no unity if there is no unity of conviction. We need unity of affection and unity of conviction. And that's why it's so important, the second level, that will preserve us in a unity of conviction. There are many Christians, true believers, who are in heaven or heading to heaven, who do not embrace the doctrines of grace. There are many Christians who do not embrace the five points of the doctrines of grace. There are believers to, who do not hold to cessationism. And they are believers. They are being heaven. There are faithful believers who are not credo-baptists. There are true believers who baptize infants. There are true believers who are, whatever, Presbyterians. We've got to be careful. But at the same time, for a local church to have this unity of conviction, the second level issues are fundamental, are so important. Imagine with me going to a church. Imagine that you're visiting a local church right now. 
You're going to this church, and they have no stand on baptism. So here comes the minister, the pastor, and suddenly he gets the baby from Ben and Emily, and he sprinkles a little bit of water. And then suddenly he gets an adult, and he brings the pool and immerses that person. You're, you're showing two different, two different... It wasn't prophetic. <laughs> Sorry, I just saw the two of you. You're, you're showing two very different, two very different concepts of what it means, baptism. And that's just mess up. Or, think with me, you go to a church and there is no stand on leadership. So some in the church believe that there should be no women pastors. And there are some in the church who think that women must be pastors. That's not going to be good. No, no, no. There will be division. No clear conviction on the gifts of the Spirit. So suddenly someone is standing and just speaking tongues. And then you have the other person who is very, very strong in his cessationism. And that's going to create confusion in the church. That's going to create division. So these doctrines are vital for the unity of a local church. The prophet Amos says, do two people walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Implying there must be agreement for us to walk together. So the life of the local church, we, we often hear that man, man, mantra, oh, doctrine divides, doctrine divides. No, doctrine unites us. In the life of the local church, sound, clear statements of what we believe are supposed to unite us. So for a church to keep the unity that Jesus Christ has purchased with his own blood, that church needs unity of conviction and unity of affection. A church that is strong in conviction, strong in conviction, but lacking affection, is just like this mighty army in which the soldiers are all dead. So we have powerful tanks, you have powerful weapons, but they have no life in them. And a church that's all about unit of affection, but no unit of conviction, is just like a body with cancer. There's no strength for the immune system that you're going to die soon. So we need both. And that's why we are walking through this series. Well, what makes us a Reformed Baptist church? And we started walking through what makes us Reformed. And my purpose is so we are in agreement, what we believe as a local church. So, what it means to be reformed? If you ask 30 people, you might get 25 different answers. What it means to be reformed. That's why we are trying to be clear what we as a local church understand to be reformed. So for some, to be reformed means to embrace covenant theology with the implication of infant baptism. So I have talked to Reformed brothers and sisters who said, you're not Reformed because you do not embrace covenant theology and you do not baptize infants. So that was his standard, what it means to be Reformed. Others believe that to be Reformed means that you must hold strictly, subscribe strictly to the three forms of unity. And that is the Belgian Confession, the Canons of Dort, and the Heidelberg Catechism. If you don't hold to the three, word by word, then you are not a Reformed. Others say that you must hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Others who say that to be Reformed, you must hold to the regulative principle of worship. 
How did you say that to be reformed? You must embrace all John Calvin's teachings. What is fascinating is that many Presbyterians are known as reformed, they're known as reformed, but then you have the Dutch reformed that they're not Presbyterians. So you can see it can be confusing. So it's good for us to be clear in defining what it means for us to be reformed. Uh, and, and, the, and it can be hard because the reformers, you think about the reformers as they are marching and fighting to reform the church, they were not thinking about a trademark. Here's what it means to be reformed. They were not fighting for that. They were fighting for something else. So I think that the best way for us to understand what, is, what should, honestly, any scholar is sober thinking should go back to the Reformation and say, what was the Reformation all about? Okay, and if a church, if a local church holds to those major points of the Reformation, yes, that's a Reformed church. So, as we go to the Reformation, it's interesting how Philip Schaff, a very well-known church historian, he says that the Reformation of the 16th century is, next to the introduction of Christianity, the greatest event in history. So he matches the Reformation with the birth of the church. Uh, similarly, William Cunningham, another church historian, he says, the Reformation from Popery in the 16th century was the greatest event or series of events that has happened since the close of the canon of scriptures. You think about the Reformation, we have the name Reform, the Reformation. The word Reformation coming from Reform means what? Reform. So, as you think about the word, they were not trying to create anything new. They were simply trying to go back, go back to the original form of the church. That was what the Reformations were fighting for. The Reformation was not a time of new discoveries, but rediscoveries of the old biblical truths. It was a time to go back to the ancient paths and not new paths. So that's what the Reformation was all about, going back to the ancient paths. And what, what are the ancient paths? The Scriptures. The Reformation was the proclamation of the old, old truths that we find in the Gospel. Amen? That's what they were fighting for. So, we are reformed not because we idolize the reformers. Oh, man, we, we, we worship John Calvin and Luther. No, no, nothing like that. We honor them as we are supposed to honor them in, what they fo in the areas that they follow Christ. But we, we worship the Lord of the Reformation. Jesus Christ was the King of the Reformation. He's the one who brought the Reformation. And the only reason why you're sitting right here with your Bibles in your laps, we are having church, we are singing, is because the Lord Jesus brought about the Reformation. Because brothers and sisters, before the Reformation, nobody had Bibles in their hands. They were not in church singing beautiful hymns. So if you want to understand what it means to be reformed, we need to go back to the Reformation. I love what Joe Beakey says. He says, the Reformation possessed at its heartbeat a devotion to the pure truth of the Holy Scriptures, especially manifesting the passionate exposition of biblical doctrines of salvation by grace 
true worship and the pursuit of holiness. That's the heart of the Reformation. The Word of God preached was properly held to be the central engine for the breaking down of Satan's realm and the upbuilding of God's kingdom. And if you think about the heart of the Reformation, many, many scholars will agree that the five solas serve as the distinguishing marks of the Reformation. And you have sola scriptura, the scriptures alone, no, no longer the traditions of the church. Sola gratia, grace alone. Solus Christ, Christ alone. No longer Christ plus Mary, not Christ plus the saints. Christ alone. Sola fide, faith alone, not faith plus something else. Then solely the glory, all this for the glory of God alone. So we are reformed because we faithfully, joyfully, eagerly embrace these doctrines. Amen? We love these doctrines. They're biblical doctrines. So, Michael Horton, he says, I think it's interesting, he says, The Reformation represents an event in the history of sound. That's beautiful. He's quoting here uh, Stephen Webb. And that's something we, we usually don't think about the Reformation as. But he says, the Reformation is an e even in the history of sound. And even of re-vocalizing the word. Public worship became a verbal event. This ministry of the word happened not only in the sermon, but in the public reading of the scriptures, in the prayers and in the singing. A verbal a verbal. Do you know why? Because you'd come to a mass and you'd see the table and you'd hear the priest with his words performing. It was so much visual. You had to see the things. He's transforming the elements of the table into the body and blood of Christ. And then with the Reformation, was, no, we need to bring the Word of God to the center. Worship is verbal. It's God speaking to us. And because we heard God speaking to us, now we speak back to Him. Through the prayers, through the singing. Affected even the structure of the church. The church was reformed. You'd come to a church before the Reformation, and you'd not have the pulpit in the center. What did you have? The table, the table, the Eucharist. And the reformers said, no, we need to get this out of here and bring the word of God to the center of the worship. The centrality and priority of the word of God in our lives is because God creates, recreates, and sanctifies his people through the word. And the reformers understood they were all pastors. The reformers were pastors, and they understood Jesus' words. Jesus said that you prove his love for him by feeding whom? His sheep. Do you remember? Simon Peter. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than this? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. So it's the proclamation of the word of God alone that opens our eyes to see that salvation belongs to God alone. And it's by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, for God's glory alone. And that's what the Word of God does to us. Amen? If you remove the Word of God, 
no longer you see the beauty of God. You're going to see the centrality of man. But what I want to do, and I need to move here because the time is going. What I want to do is to talk about two aspects. The, I want to further develop what it means to be reformed. We saw the five solas. We will spend a long time in the five points of the doctrines of grace. But I want to mention two aspects of the reformed theology. I think it's vital for our life here. And that is the polemical, polemical and the experiential. Polemical coming from polemics, and that's where you have, uh, you'd say, an aggressive attack, an argument against something. So, for example, the, the creation account was Moses' polemic way of showing that this is the truth of creation, not the Babylonians or the Egyptians. So there's polemic there. And there is an aspect that we are polemical and experiential. So we go back to the, uh, the metaphor of the army and the body. As an army, the church is called to fight. And as the body, the church is called to live in harmonious and affectionate relationship between the members of the body. We need both. So as it comes to the polemical aspect, think about the polemic. Uh, we are in a battle as a church. Paul tells us that we are in a war, waging war, and this war is not against what? Flesh and blood. He tells us that our weapons are spiritual weapons, the word of God. He tells us that our theology must be militant and polemical, using divine weapons to cast down or destroy every stronghold of the mind that lists itself against the knowledge of God. So as you think about as a reformed church, we engage in a spiritual warfare with the truth of God. We are not ashamed. We fight against false ideologies by preaching the truth. So we declare that God has made male and female. We fight against the gender and secular ideology. All these messed up things that we have been hearing with the truth of God. The sovereignty of God. The goodness of God. We use the five solas or the five points of the doctrines of grace as mighty weapons. We declare that God alone can save sinners, not men. God alone, through Christ alone. We fight false ideologies that give men all the glory. So much of church today is filled with men-centered theology. Men gets all the glory. And the reformed teaching is to fight against that. God gets the glory, not men. We fight against the false teachings that man is free from the power of sin. No, man is completely, completely enslaved, completely affected and infected by sin. That's why we need a Savior to save us. So, Reformed theology strengthens us to wage war in this spiritual battle that we are. Amen? So, I believe that with all my heart, the Reformed theology... This glorious theology that the Lord has given us encourages us to stand strong and give us ammunition to fight against these man-made teachings. But I want to focus in the experiential aspect of Reformed theology because we are known for being frozen chosen, right? Reformed people are known for being cold, not being happy and joyful people. And I believe that Reformed theology affects all our being, not just the mind. Experiential implies that we personally experience. Amen? We savor, we taste that God is good. 
We taste of His sovereignty over us. Reformed theology, when faithfully proclaimed and joyfully embraced, breaks us, humbles us, reshapes us, and places our eyes on the sovereignty of our God. That's what it does. As Paul says, when we behold, one of the great marks of Reformed theology is man is incapable and in great need of God's mercy. And Reformed theology shows this great mercy of God. And then as Paul says, in view of God's great mercy, now you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And that's what we do. We are totally, from head to toe, from actions to affections, affected by God's mercy. Amen? And I think it's important here for us to think about faith. Sometimes we think that faith, faith is just this mental activity. If you just believe... And of course, there is the mental aspect, the intellectual aspect of understanding things. But faith is much more than just the intellect. Faith is the arms that unites us to Christ Jesus. By faith, we embrace Jesus. And by faith, we are embraced by Jesus. We become a new creation with Him. By faith... As we embrace Jesus and we are embraced by Jesus, we are transferred from the story that we see playing around us to the story of salvation that God has for us. There is a transfer. We are transferred from, from the drama that we see outside to the drama of God's redemption, His mercy, His grace. So there must be much life, much joy, much tears, feelings, affections in a Reformed Baptist church like ours. Because the solid, robust, strong Reformed theology that exalts God's sovereignty, grace, power, has touched us deeply. Amen? We are touched deeply by this truth. And one aspect of the experiential aspect, and I think it's vital for us to think through, is experiencing suffering. And that's something that the reformers always emphasize. The suffering is not God cursing you, but God blessing His people. It's God making you more like Christ. Part of the experiential aspect of reformed theology is the theology of suffering. So think about, we are taken from the story of Adam, the story of the fall, and we are placing in the drama of Jesus, who is the suffering servant. And now you want to be placed in the drama of the suffering servant and not sur suffer? There is no way. We are placed into this drama in which suffering is vital. Christ conquers through suffering. The kingdom advances through suffering. So we are placed in this drama to suffer together. We believe that God's not only sovereign over salvation, but over every aspect of our lives, even the suffering and the pain and the trials. Amen? Martin Luther, he said, the suffering was a necessary prerequisite for good theology. Don't expect good theology from Joe Osteen or from anybody who does not teach the blessing of suffering for Christ. For Luther, the theologian of the cross, 
expects that he himself will be crucified because he's identified with the weakness and the folly of God who can be found only in the suffering and the cross. So suffering is a fundamental aspect of the life of the reformed Christian to become a good theologian. James 1 says, James 1 verses 2 and 3, Count it all joy, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Perseverance. We were just studying the perseverance of the saints. I love of John Calvin, great reformer. John Calvin says about this text, he says, We certainly dread disease and want and exile and prison and reproach and death. Because we regard them as evils. But when we understand they are turned through God's kindness. Unto helps and aids to our salvation. It is ingratitude to murmur. And not willingly to submit to be thus paternally dealt with. That's all you're singing. I ask the Lord that I might grow. And then he answered the prayer. But wasn't the way I was expecting. I thought he was just coming and conquer my sin. And actually he did what? He let me experience the attacks of the evil one, the sin, the pain, the suffering. So, Reformed theology declares that the sovereign Lord of our salvation, who accomplished our great salvation through sufferings, uses our suffering to bring sanctification and then the final glorification amen so we embrace experientially there is this experience of suffering in our lives reformed people are well known for not rejecting the suffering but embracing the suffering because we know that our lord was champion and victorious through suffering and all those who are in him and following him will have the same path amen so as we are thinking about experiencing this theology that does not make us cold, the frozen chosen ones. No, make us alive, make us affectionate. We don't simply read and study the scriptures only to grasp its teachings. But we read and study the scriptures so the word may grasp us. There is a massive difference between you studying just to grasp the scriptures. When you study the scriptures to be grasped by the God of the scriptures. I know a lot of people who study the scriptures a lot. They have a wonderful grasp of the scriptures. Their brains are the size of this pulpit. But they were never grasped by the Christ of the scriptures. Our reformed theology is supposed to impart in us a real experiential knowledge of the truth of God. We experience the depravity of man. We experience the, 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 the heinousness of sin. We, like Paul in Romans 3, we experience the depravity of man, that no one is righteous. From head to toe, we have been infected by sin. And we experience the pain when we sin, even after Christ saves us. We have pain, we have sorrow because we sin against the Lord or against a brother or sister in Christ. 
But once we are exposed to our total depravity, once we have been lowered to the dust where we belong, then we are able to experience the joy of salvation. So once we realize how depraved we are, how needy we are, how incapable we are, how unable we are to save ourselves, when we see Christ saving us by grace alone, through faith alone, for God's glory alone, He puts a new song in our hearts. There's a new smile in our faces. So I would say that our theology leads to a joyful, reverent worship. There should be a mix. In our worship, there should always be a mix of jubilation, exaltation, happiness, and at the same time, awe, reverence, fear, sobriety. Ian Hamilton, he says, Christian worship will always be marked by intimacy and awesomeness, being awe. Reverence and awe does not mean joylessness. And it's no excuse to say that the joy is deep in our hearts, hidden from sight. Right? A cranky person saying that he's joyful. <laughs> All right, I cannot hide that joy. <laughs> what is truly deep within will show itself in our faces and general demeanor. This will vary from person to person because the Lord has made us all uniquely different. But manifesting joyful reverence should be a distinguishing mark, mark of all true Christian worship. Amen? You don't want to go to a church where it's just like a funeral service of a person who actually went to hell and everybody's so sobbing and crying. But you also don't want to go to a church where it feels like it's a circus. We've we got to have this balance of joy and sobriety. I love the hymn from Isaac Watts. How sweet and awful. How sweet, how tender, how joyful. And at the same time, how awful, full of awe and reverence is this place with, with Christ within the doors. So that leads us to the last point here. Reformed theology and experiential singing. So we sing deep, rich, theological songs and hymns in our church. And these songs must affect us. It must affect our thinking, our feeling, and our affections. Amen? Because the hymns that we are singing, they are proclaiming what? The truth of God. The rich exposition of the Word of God places us in, sub in submission to the God of the Word. And then our theology is used by the Holy Spirit to draw us and to cast us as characters in this unfolding drama of God's salvation. I love how Michael Horton says, he says, Far from masters, we are mastered. Instead of seizing the truth, we are seized by the truth. Captivated by God's gift. In response, we can only say, Amen, Hallelujah, or Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. So Paul says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ. And that's why there is a, I would say, a revolution in singing after the Reformation. There was no beautiful hymns in church during the dark ages. Of course, there was before, but during the dark ages until the time of the Reformation, 
there was no joyful, glorious hymns that the church was singing. Why? Because there was no word. The word of God must dwell inside the church for the church to sing back to the Lord. So Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. How can we not sing? How can we not sing joyfully, thankfully? It doesn't matter if it's in pain or in happiness, in trial or in peace. How can we not sing joyfully when we see the smiling face of our Heavenly Father who chose us, redeemed us through His Son, and gave us His Spirit to guarantee our final adoption and glorification? How can we not sing joyfully when we see the smiling face of the Father through the Son, by the Spirit in us? So, I, I say the doctrines of grace put a new song in our mouths. They reveal a triune God who delights in welcoming sinners into His presence. That's why I love singing, how deep, how deep the Father loves for us. How deep the Father loves for us. How vast beyond all measure that he would give us his only son to make wretched his treasure. Michael Reeves, he says, what the reformers saw, especially through the message of justification by faith alone, was the revelation of, a, of an exuberantly happy God who glorifies in sharing his happiness. He's not stingy, or utilitarian, but a God who glories in being gracious. So what makes us reform? I don't care what other people say, what makes us reform is going back to the heart of the Reformation, the centrality of the Word of God. Grace alone, Christ alone, God's glory alone, clearly pictured through the doctrines of grace, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints, all these doctrines, brothers and sisters, all these doctrines do not reveal a God who is stingy, a God who is joyless, a God who is cold. No, it reveals a God who is generous, joyful, lovely, loving. And that's why we sing with so much joy. Once we are embraced by this truth, our whole being is affected. Amen? I love how the psalmist says, Psalm 71, Psalm 71, verses 22 through 24. Ah, we will also praise you with the harp, his hands in movement, for your faithfulness, O oh my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre. O oh, Holy One of Israel, my lips shall shout, will shout for joy. When I sing praises to you, and look at that, my soul also, which you have redeemed, and my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long. For they have been put to shame and disappointed, those who sought to do me hurt. Whole being, soul, mouth, lips, hands, feeling, sinking, everything is affected by the glorious glorious truth of our salvation in Christ. Joe Beakey and Paul Smalley, they say, 
Here's their summary of Reformed theology. Joyful submission to our covenant God is the hallmark of Reformed theology. Joyful submission to our covenant God. Amen? A joyful submission. So, I would say the Reformed theology help us, help us to be a strong, militant church and at the same time, a live, well, healthy body. Strong doctrine and strong affections. But there is one more thing I want to say. A Reformed, theo- a reformed church that embraces the Reformed theology is a Semper Reformanda church. And you know what that is? Semper Reformanda. That's what they start developing right after the Reformation, implying that the church was not just reformed, but the church must be constantly being reformed by the Word of God. The church must be constantly under the scrutiny, under the power and the influence of the Word of God. Do you know what happens once the church comes out of that influence? No longer the Word shapes us, but the world starts to shape us. And many of you know of churches that you are part of. And as soon as there was a departure from the Word of God, where the Word of God was no longer reforming that church, suddenly the world started reforming that place. Or deforming, a better word. So we as a church want to be constantly being reformed by the Word of God. Amen? So we can say that we are reformed because we hold to the Sola Scriptura. We saw, I'll go back here, Sola Scriptura, the Word of God alone. The Word of God alone, the Scriptures alone, controls, governs, and gives life to this church. The pulpit takes the central place because the Word of God alone takes the central place. We are formed, reformed, and sanctified by the Scriptures. Brothers and sisters, we do not want new revelations. Don't bring new revelations. Give us the old revelation. Amen? The old paths. We believe in Christ alone. Christ alone for our salvation. Christ alone as our mediator. We do not need others to mediate for us. We declare that faith alone in Christ alone is God's instrument and gift for sinful men to be declared righteous in God's sight. It's not by being born a Christian, in a Christian home. It's not by being uh, raised in a church. It's by the gift of faith that the Holy Spirit imparts in the sinner where suddenly he is able to see the glory of Christ and embrace Jesus Christ. And we declare that faith alone in Christ alone is not a lonely faith. There is a difference. Faith alone and this faith is not lonely. This faith is living, active, affectionate, and powerful. Saving faith relocates us from Adam to Christ. And once we are moved from old Adam to the Christ of the Scriptures, we have a new life. We are a new creation. Our affections, our feelings, our thinking, it's all infected and affected by His grace. Amen? Not only that, we hold and proclaim the offensive doctrine of grace alone. It's offensive. Grace alone is very offensive. Everyone deserves hell. 
Everyone deserves the righteous judgment of a holy God. And it's only by sovereign grace and grace alone that sinners can be saved. It's by grace alone that the Father chooses some. It's by grace alone that Christ alone endures the wrath of God for those chosen by grace. And it's by grace alone that the Spirit applies the work of Christ in the lives of those whom the Father chose. Amen? And the capstone is all of this as a church is for God's glory alone. So, Hamilton says... So what is the distinguished mark of a life which confesses solely Deo Gloria, to God alone be glory? A life of wonder, love, praise that is informed and shaped by the Word of God. Reformed Christians, above all, should be known for their joyful, thankful, praise-filled lives. Amen? And then he says, Commitment to orthodoxy. Is a commitment to rejoice in God. Look at that experience. Rejoice in God. As well as a commitment to defend the faith once for all, deliver to the saints. That's the polemics. It was because God was not being worshipped according to his word that there was a reformation. God's honor was paramount. So, brothers and sisters, my, my purpose with this series. We're, we're, next Sunday, we start what it means for us to be Baptist. And, and the purpose of this series here is to go back to Ephesians 4 or to go to Philippians chapter 2 and help us to walk in unity. And, be, and by walking in unity of conviction, we will glorify the Lord. So Paul says, Philippians 2, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation or fellowship in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being what? The same mind. There is no unity in a church if we are not united, united in conviction of what we believe. Affections without conviction leads to superficial sentimentality, and convictions without affection leads to harshness. So each member of this church, you have a duty, you have an obligation to preserve the unity of this church. And one of the ways you do that is by knowing what we believe as a local body, and that will help us to walk together. So I'll finish with the words of one of my favorite preachers, Spurgeon, he said, that was his first sermon at the tabernacle. Look at that. They were inaugurating the tabernacle, his church. His first sermon there was on the five points of the doctrines of grace. And here are his words. I would propose that the subject of the ministry in this house as long as this pulpit shall stand, and as long as this house shall be fre frequented by worshipers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. Spurgeon says, I'm never ashamed, I'm never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist, a Reformed. I do not hesitate to take the name of Baptist. But if I'm asked what is my creed, I reply, it's Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters, we treasure, we treasure this wonderful 
titles, Reform, Baptists, they're precious. They are precious. You see God working in history, helping His people to understand better. But ultimately, ultimately, we are not Reformed, we are not Baptists, we are what? Christians. We belong to Christ. So I pray that the Lord would deliver us from an arrogance where we see ourselves more into a denomination than into belonging to the Savior. So may all these doctrines that we are studying help us to love Christ more. And when we start loving Christ more, start loving His people more too. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we come before You. We thank You for this time together. It's precious to be in Your presence. There is nothing, nothing that we desire more than to be with You. We long, we long to be with You. All week long, waiting for the first day so we can assemble together. And we long for that day when we will be with You forever. And there will be no sin to hinder our relationship or our relationship with our brothers and sisters. Lord, as we are working through this series, I pray that you'd help us. Help us to be stronger Christians. Men and women who love Christ Jesus. I pray that all this theology, all these doctrines that we are studying would not only affect our minds, but affect our affections our feelings, our actions, how we treasure you, how we love you, how we rejoice in you, and how we love one another. Lord, for those here who do not know you, today is the great day of salvation, not tomorrow, but today. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will open their eyes to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. And I pray to grant them faith, faith to run to Jesus and be embraced by the King of Kings. And Lord, help us. You tell us that it was granted to us not only believe, but to suffer for Christ. So help us to embrace this glorious gift. Help us to be a church that's faithful to you, that loves you, because you have loved us first. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.